0: Hello? Okay, me and the mic are not friends today. All right, so today's scripture is from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Says the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Well, for me, let me just say welcome. Glad you are joining us in this nice warm building today. And, uh, Thanks for the reading. I'm glad you read that and all those fun names to read, and not me. Um, Today is part two in our mini-series, so if you just joined us, uh, you can listen to what we looked at last week, if you are so inclined. Uh, We're going through this very tiny, maybe lesser-known book of Haggai, It's one of the minor prophets, and it consists of only two chapters, so it's really small. And yet, uh, it is very small, but I want to emphasize that it, it does have some incredibly important truths to share with us. And even though the prophecies and the words that we're reading that God is speaking to the people in the text was written for a people long ago, it's a message that has a vivid and practical application, I think, For our lives today, as we're hopefully going to see as we go through this a little bit. Uh, Now, before we get into it, uh, something that I really kind of thought of when I first read this, and uh, in conjunction with uh, looking through Instagram, but I don't know if you're familiar with these like, you know, expectations versus reality memes that you see a lot on Instagram. I promise this kind of fits in what we're going to be talking about. Uh, And one of my favorite ones that's really popular right now, especially on Instagram, is like the you know, Instagram versus reality. And you know, you see the person that on vacation, they're at like the pyramids or on a beach and they're standing there alone and it's just this beautiful serene image. And then the kind of camera pans a little bit and there's like 150 people standing next to them. And you don't really get that impression from the Instagram version. And there's all these kind of uh, kind of expectations versus, versus reality memes out there. I think uh, you can see one for just about every possible scenario, whether it's exercise, you wanna get in shape, and you have like your idea of what that's gonna look like, and then the reality is uh, not quite what you expected. Or when you have a job, you're starting your new job, and you think you're there, you're gonna change the world, you're ready, and you're changing more coffee filters than anything else, and you're like, this is not what I expected. Uh, or, you know, your appearance, you know, I love the memes of, like, uh, the guy who, how he feels, you know, like, when he puts on, like, when I put on a muscle shirt, you know, I always feel a bit strong, you know, like, oh, yeah, I got really showing off my muscles, but how it actually looks is not quite the same as how I might feel. Or your studies, you have your expectation of what you want to do and how it's going to be, getting through it, and you're really excited, but then it's actually a lot of hard work and study and not what you maybe expected exactly. There's all these for different scenarios, and the humor of these memes is found in their truth. It's found in their truth, and that's what we're going to see in the text today. And the reality is that we all have expectations. We all have expectations that have fallen flat in the face of reality. Am I alone here? You ever have expectations and things didn't quite go as you thought they would, didn't quite turn out the way you expected this is especially true when it comes to our own abilities, our ambitions, what we're aiming for. We all have this kind of, these kinds of ideas, if you will, of what we want to accomplish in life. And what I really want to then hone in on today is taking that concept into our faith. Because as Christians, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're a believer here today, if you're following after Christ, you should have, or at least begin to have, a desire to accomplish great things for God to accomplish great things for God. That's what we want to have. We, we want to hope to bring something of value to the table. Bring something of value to God's kingdom. To building God's kingdom. We hope to see God work through us in our life. But sometimes the expectation and the reality can be different than what we expected. And we can be Sometimes discouraged. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Seeing how the people in Jerusalem at the time became discouraged when they fell into this trap of unmet expectations. We're going to look at why that is and maybe some things to hopefully help us prevent from falling into that trap. Now, last week, just to kind of recap a little bit, very briefly, on what we're looking at here. So, last week we went through some of the background, some of the context of the book. Uh, which we won't get into in detail today, but you can find most of basically the happenings, if you will, that's going on around this prophecy or throughout this prophecy in the book of Ezra. So you can read through that if you want to be kind of get a full image of the the big perspective of what's going on. But basically, the people of Israel, they had been in exile for about 70 years. It started with uh, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. We're fast-forwarding now uh, through that time. 70 years, around 70 years has passed, and finally they've come back to Jerusalem. Not all the people, we looked at last week, about 50,000 of, you know, well in over 100,000 or in the hundreds of thousands of people that had been taken captive. Only about 50,000 went back to Jerusalem. And they went back to the city that had been completely destroyed. It had been desolate, it, had, it was overgrown, it was run down, the walls were gone. The temple lay in ruins, and that's what is key for our understanding of the text. The temple had lay in ruins. And so when they originally came back, they came back with a passion to rebuild the temple. They had put things in, in, in kind of in order, God made a way, they came back to rebuild the temple, and they began to do it. They began to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundations for the temple, and they rebuilt the altar so that they could make sacrifices that God had, as God had called them to do. But they almost immediately became discouraged due to difficulties and a few other uh, kind of complications along the way, and then the work stopped on the temple for 14 years. And that brings us to the beginning of the book of Haggai. God challenges the people, we looked at this last week, God challenges the people to get Back to building the temple. And we looked at how they had been busying themselves with other things. They had been busying themselves with other work. They were willing to work on building up their own homes, building up their own houses, they're they're putting in, you know, a new bedroom, but the temple lay in ruins. And God kind of calls them out on this. And we looked at how they accept the challenge. They say, Yeah, you're right, and they, they get back to work. They got to work building the temple. They start building, and things are looking up, right? And here in chapter 2, from what we look at from chapter 1, we're jumping ahead one month. So we look at that date at the beginning. It's about one month later since where they left off where they had started building the temple. So they've been now building for a month. The temple is being built. Everything's going great. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. Let's read verse 3. Again, I'll be reading from the ESV. Sorry, I forgot to tell, so it might be a little different behind me. Uh, Verse 3, Who is left among you? This is God talking to the people through Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What is he talking about there? What is God Calling them out, or what is he saying to the people? Well, to understand it, let me jump back a little bit to 16 years later, give or take. Uh, And this is, we'll read from Ezra chapter 3. So, about 16 years before this, when the foundation of the temple had been laid, right? So, they came back to Israel, they laid the foundation. This is where all that passion, all that excitement was kind of being put into practice. And even then, though, as the foundation is laid, the altar is done, and they're kind of taking a step back and looking at what they had built so far, there was already mixed feelings about what they were building. And this may be a contributing factor to what stopped the building, actually, or at least a a part of what halted their kind of motivation, if you will, to continue the work. So let me read from Ezra 3, 12 through 13. So, but many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away." So let's take this into consideration. So the people are back in Israel, right? They're out of exile. The foundation for the house of God is being rebuilt. Things are moving forward. The foundations have been laid. Altar is is underway. And now we've got a whole lot of shouting going on. Some were shouting for joy. Why were they shouting for joy? Because the work had began They were excited, we're back on track, we're building a place of worship for our God. These were, especially the younger people, they had never experienced that. They had never experienced an altar. They had never seen God's house as it was in former days. They had never seen the temple, and here they are building God's house, and they're excited, and they have joy, and so they shout with joy. But others felt only discouraged at the sight and wept at the sight of the foundations of the temple. Why? Where was this discouragement coming from? Well, in a nutshell, the reality of what they were building was not what they expected. The reality of what they were building was not what they expected. They thought it would be different than this. Now, fast forwarding 14 years from the time of that moment to when, and and now the building had stopped, so they finished that. There's weeping, there's joy. 14 years, nothing else happened. No other building had happened. And so what we see then is that this, and this is what I think God is pointing out, is that this same heart of discouragement stayed with the people. The weeping became louder than the cries of joy. Who is left? God asks. And I think if we're doing a little bit of calculations, after that 14 years passed, there couldn't have been very many people left who had seen the original temple. And those who had seen it would have been you know, either very, very small when they had seen it, um, or only briefly, because it has been quite some time. So they would have been in their 80s, those who had seen it originally and been old enough to remember it. Who has left? So I think most of them are probably gone, but yet the spirit of this discouragement, the spirit of discouragement remained with the people. This is why I think this is a, a contributing factor to why the building stopped, How do you see it now, God asks. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God is looking directly into their hearts. He already knows how they see it. God doesn't ask questions because he needs an answer. He's not trying to know something. It's always for their benefit, for reflection. It's always rhetorical. He knows that they're discouraged. He knows It is the same heart of discouragement that was displayed 14 years earlier by those who were weeping at the side of the foundation. And I know that this is something that we can grab onto. I don't know, I don't care who you are or where you come from or how long you've been in your walk with the Lord. We've all felt moments of discouragement We've all felt moments of discouragement where things were not going the way we thought. We have felt the sting of our expectations falling flat in the face of reality. Especially when it comes to our serving the Lord. And what I want to encourage you with today is that when it comes to our work for the Lord and with the Lord, our service in the kingdom of God, we should never be discouraged if we have the right perspective. We should never be discouraged. And when we are, we're really missing the point. Today I want to give you a few reasons why from God himself found here in the text, as God seeks to encourage his people to not lose hope, but to hold on to hope, to see the big picture of where things are going, and to have faith in him, that he is with them, And what was the cause of their discouragement? Well, the problem was rooted in their perspective. It was rooted in their perspective. Rather than focusing on what they could be doing for God, building up his house, answering his call for them to rebuild the temple, a glorious call, rather than serving him faithfully and obediently, they were much more concerned with their own legacy. That's how I see this. They were much more concerned with their own legacy because what they were really doing was comparing themselves to what was. They were comparing what they were doing to what had been done before. They thought about Solomon's temple and all of its splendor arrayed with gold and its glory drawing the attention of world leaders to gaze at its beauty It's a a marvel to, to view. And then they looked over at the foundation that they had laid. They looked at what their hands were building. They looked at the walls they had erected. And they saw this as something that paled in comparison to what was. And so they became discouraged. They became discouraged. Maybe they were thinking, you know, what's the point? I mean, look at this. Call that a temple? If this is the best we can do, we might as well do nothing at all. That's the image we see in their heart. It's so easy to end up here. It's so easy to fall into this trap. And a big part of that trap, when we are falling, falling into this, you know, expectations versus reality, and falling into discouragement, it's often in this trap of comparison, of comparison. Because we're comparing ourselves to something. That's why we feel discouraged. You have to. If you feel like you're not meeting a standard, then you have set a standard based off of something. We compare ourselves to the greats of the past, especially as a a pastor, as a preacher, I can tell you that's something that I think all pastors and preachers deal with at some point. Looking at past world changers and the legacies that they've built and how they've you know, made such an impact on the Christian faith and the Christian walk with, the, you know, the books that they've written or the sermons they've preached, those who have gone into unknown territories as missionaries and changed the world. And we can think, oh, I could never do that. Oh, I could never be that good. I could never, you know, I could never preach that well. I could never speak that well. I could never, I could never give that much. I could never have that much willingness to lay down my life for the mission field. I could I just, I could never do that. And we can feel discouraged. We can compare ourselves to our peers. We all do this. And we can look at their gifts. and think, man, I wish I, if I had gifts like that, sure, I could do it. But, I mean, you know, God didn't bless me with that, so I can't do it. We look at their talents. Oh, we look at their resources. Yeah, okay, look at, you know, they're, they have all these finances. They have all these things that going for them. So of course they have time. Of course they can invest the way they do. I don't have that. And we can feel discouraged. We can even battle with comparison between our own expectations and the reality, right? Well, you know, I I could have done some great things for God. Now it's too late. Now it's too late. Maybe it's because you messed up. Maybe it's because of sin or, or a shortcoming or, or where you felt like you made the wrong decision and went the wrong direction in your life and now you think, well, now it's too late. If I had started then, then, then I could do something for God. Then I could do something great for God, but now it's too late. It's too late for me. I have nothing left to give. I missed the boat. And we can compare ourselves with what we thought we could do and the reality of where we are and feel discouraged. All this comparison leads to discouragement. Our enemy loves it when we fall into this trap of comparing ourselves with anyone or anything, because it always leads to discouragement. It always leads to discouragement, or pride, if you find yourself comparing yourself and finding yourself uh, better than everybody else. But if you do it long enough, you'll always find there's somebody better. There's always somebody above you. And so it, in the end, always leads to discouragement. All this does, when we do this, is prevent us from serving where we are, with what we have, with what God has given us. It prevents us from serving as God has called us to serve. It prevents us also from experiencing the joy of serving the Lord that we receive when we give what we have. When we give what we have. Here's what I have, God. Use it. Use it for your glory. There's joy and peace and grace in that. God says to us, In the text, to them and to us, be strong. Be strong. It's like, I know you're discouraged, but be strong. Be strong, all you people of the land. Be strong. I like that he specifically addresses the leaders. He addresses the governor, then he addresses the high priest, and then all the people. We won't get into that. For all of us, he says, be strong. And he's going to give us some reasons that we have to be strong. There are reasons we have to be strong. It's not just arbitrary saying, get over it. There are reasons that we have that we can trust and have hope and have faith. We can have strength. He's going to be showing us that there is never any reason to be discouraged when we're doing the work of the Lord. Whether rebuilding a temple or it's giving to the church, serving drinks at the back or worship or Helping someone on the street, going into the mission field, or just supporting a missionary. No matter how big or how small. When we're doing things for the Lord, the work of the Lord, we should never be discouraged. In verse 4, the end of verse 4, he gives us it, he lays it out really clearly in a word. Work. Work. Oh boy, Christians don't like that word very much I don't want that. I want, to, I want to feel things. I want to experience things. I don't want to work. That's what God says. Work. But then he adds on the encouragement, the strength. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. In, in verse 5, he goes on to say, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. So he goes all the way back. He's like, this is a promise. It's true then. It's true now. I'm with you. So, do the work. Be encouraged. Have strength. And then he goes on to say, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. But that key word work. Work. Now, he's not saying work to build a legacy. That's going to lead to discouragement because it's always going to pale in comparison to somebody. He's not saying work so that you can check off all the cool things that you've done for God this week. He's not saying work so that you can be seen as great in the eyes of others. He's saying, work for I am with you. And it's the with you part that's important. It's about our perspective. See, when you work because God is with you, when you work because God is with you, then no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're doing, You can always be sure it is for a great purpose because it's for Him. And He knows things that you don't know. Bring what you have. Bring what you have, no matter how little, and give it to the Lord. Serve Him with what you have because when you're a part of His plan, it is always going to be working out for a good and a great purpose. It's a part of a bigger plan. He's going to show us that a little bit. We'll talk about it more, I think, next week, but I want to point a little bit to it. God is always working all things out for good through all eternity. He's working out things through, for good through all eternity. So when he asks us to do something, even if we have so little to give, so little time, so little money, so little talents, not very many gifts, whatever it is, We can still be confident that it is always serving a greater purpose than we may ever know. We can trust that. We can have hope in that. That's our faith. Let me jump actually to the end of the text to show where this is going to be leading. I'm talking about the latter temple. Verse nine says, "The latter, the latter glory of this house. Talking about the house that they're building with their hands. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former." says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. What does that mean? See, you don't need to be discouraged because you never know what God may be doing. You never know what he's working out in what you're doing now in the future. You may not see it. You may not experience it. See, this temple would be greater than they really knew. They saw it and thought, it's nothing compared to what was. God's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. This one's going to be even greater than what was before. This temple would be greater than they knew, greater than the previous temple. And though they didn't even though they would never really see it and never really fully experience it. Now, first of all, just practically, this temple actually would literally be more beautiful and more amazing than the temple that Solomon had built. It kind of gets a, a facelift, if you will, by King, Her- <coughs> sorry, King Herod, later, who remodels the temple and puts it into this, you know, again, this kind of state greater than what Solomon had built. Uh, although there's, he kinda, there's some thoughts that maybe he did that to be... Uh, to be like kind of fulfilling his own uh, prophecy that he might be the Messiah. But either way, practically, the temple itself actually would become more beautiful and more grand. But that's not what's important. Because what's more important is that this temple that they built with their hands would be the very temple that Jesus would stand in one day. That Jesus would stand and teach and preach the good news of the gospel of salvation to the lost. He says, in this place I will give peace. In this place, I will give peace. And in verse 7, I'll just read one bit of verse 7. He says, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This temple they built would be the temple that ushered in the transition, the new covenant, where the curtain would be torn. It was in this very temple that the curtain that hung would be torn in two. And we would no longer be separated from God bringing our sacrifices to an altar to make a propitiation for our our sins. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would dwell within us. And we ourselves would become temples of the Holy Spirit. God saw this. And their building, that temple, was a part of that plan, a part of that great purpose. Even though they didn't know it, even though they didn't see it, they were discouraged. They saw what was missing. They were comparing themselves with what was. They were missing what God was really doing. And let me just say a bit about that. See, the time of God dwelling in the midst of the people. We see that phrase a lot in the Old Testament, that God was in the midst of the people. That would transition into a time where God would be within his people. That's where we are today. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are the temple of God in the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers. There's that word again. Work. We are God's fellow workers and God's field and God's building. We are the end result of that future temple that God saw. God knew what was coming. God knew what was really being foreshadowed in the foundation that they laid. As they wept, he thought, oh, if you only could see what I see. If you only knew what I knew, what I know. If you only could see what what you're really building and what it's leading to, what it's foreshadowing, and you would be shouting for joy. The temple itself represented the presence of God. It's where God dwelt. But as that curtain tore between the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt and the rest of the temple where the people were, the promised fulfillment was complete. The work they were doing in building that temple would lead to this future great glory. So I encourage you today, don't be discouraged. You are God's temple. The Spirit of God dwells within you when you belong to Jesus Christ. We are made holy through the work of Jesus Christ because God is holy. And we are now God's building. We are now God's fellow workers. That's where we're at. That's where we're at now. So we never need to be discouraged. We can look back and see how God had done all of these things and what it was leading to so how much more when is God still continuing to do great things even when we have little? I encourage you not to be discouraged. And I want to add to that. Don't just say amen. All right, pastor. Amen. Sounds good. Temple. Sounds all of it. Love it. Don't be discouraged. I'll take that away. Don't forget that word. <laughs> Work. Every time I say it, I can just feel like this. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. How much more true is that now than it was then? Because God isn't amongst us. He is within us. We have to move past our own insecurities. We need to move beyond... The comparisons that we make with others, we need to move away from reflecting on the past and what could have been and where we missed the boat and instead move into present action, present work, no matter how much or how little you have of your time, your talents, and your finances. Find a way to serve the Lord. Lord. Because you are a fellow worker with him. You're a fellow worker with him. Work, for he is with you. Work, for he is with you. And one thing the people were really lacking at that time, especially when they stopped the building, was motivation. It was motivation. That's the feeling you have when I talk about work. We, we often have a lack of motivation. And to be perfectly honest, step away from my notes, it's always dangerous. I feel like that's especially true right now. As we kind of came out of this time over the last two years where like most, a lot of things were canceled, a lot of people were like, you know, going to school and work and everything in their pajamas because everything was online. And now we're back, and a lot of things are kind of a little bit back to normal in the sense of, like, we have more things to do. And I feel like I hear a lot, like, oh, my gosh, my life is so overwhelming. It's like, is it really that different from what it was before? Well, no, but it feels like a lot. And, and I think we can feel overwhelming. We can lose our motivation if we're not careful. As last week, I discussed that they, you know, they, the people had become distracted. They had become distracted, right? They had stopped focusing on the work of God... And started focusing on their own lives. Focusing on the busyness of their lives. And I think right now we can be very tempted to fall into that. Oh, I'm just so busy. I've got so much. I've got this and that. And I don't have time to do anything for the Lord. I don't have time to work. Well, you are a fellow worker with God. And he calls you to work because he is with you. To reject that is dangerous. Get that motivation back. They were building up. Their own houses, painting the living room rather than building up the temple of God. How easy we can get distracted with the busyness of our life and not be doing the work to build the kingdom of God. And this heart attitude stayed with them when they actually did get to that point of doing the work, this kind of lack of motivation, this discouragement. If we don't have a motivation to see the work of God done, we'll easily fall into this discouragement, into this trap, when things don't quite go as we hoped. things get a little bit hard, our life gets a little stressed, a little bit busy, I don't have time anymore, I I don't have the resources, I don't have the capacity, I don't have the gifts, and we can easily lose motivation to do the work we're called to do as believers. When our expectations don't match the reality, this can be a danger, so find hope. Find hope in the reality that when God, when you're doing work for the Lord, it is always for a great purpose. Rest in the truth that you are, in fact, a temple of God. Yet God is with you. He dwells within you and you you are doing His work. It is for a great purpose. This should bring motivation to work, to serve the Lord with whatever we have and in whatever ways we can to His glory. And it brings joy. It brings peace. In fact, it brings more peace than anything else. You're really busy. When you make that extra time to serve the Lord, you have extra grace and peace and joy, not less. Let me talk just a few practical things when it comes to work. Ways to get to work. And there are many, there are a lot of things that we could talk about. I want to throw in a few that I felt like also fit in with the text a bit today. And uh, this is ways to work in the church, and and certainly we can take these truths beyond. So first, I want to talk about the work of giving. The work of giving. And I say this because I feel like it's really strongly in the text, and I think that was a part of their discouragement. The reason that we see it in the text is because God was addressing their own heart issues, and so I think maybe it was also like, ah, if we had more resources, if we had more money, if we had, you know, if we had more gold, if we had more of, you know, if we had more kind of coming in, then we could do more. We could, build a, we could have built a greater temple. But we don't have the resources. And God answers this in verse 7 and 8. And I'll we'll just kind of jump through here. He says, he talks about shaking. I love this. He says, I will shake. I will shake the heavens, the earth, the seas, the land, all the nations. And then he talks about all the nations will bring in finances. He'll bring in the gold, bring in the money into this house. And in verse 8, he makes it very clear what we should really have our hope and faith and trust in, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's all his. And when we really believe this, and we trust in him as our provider, we can always give generously, even when we have a little. We can always trust God when he calls us to do something, calls us into something, that the resources are going to be there. I think of the woman with the two pennies that Jesus praised for giving so generously, though it was nothing. She had given all she had, and though it was so little in comparison with everyone else, this is what glorified God. This is what glorified God. She wasn't giving out of her abundance. She was giving out of her trust and faith in her true provider. How many of us are hesitant because we want to hold on too tightly to the possessions of this world rather than saying God is my father. He will take care of me. And to that I also would encourage you when it comes to work, especially with giving, but I think in any way, it's learning to be the answer to prayer. Learning to be the answer to prayer. How often do Christians love to pray for those who are in need, pray for those around them who are struggling when they have money in their own pocket that could easily make a difference in that person's life? but you don't give, and I would say I would extend that beyond just finances, but also time, your gifts, your talents, your abilities. You have a neighbor who's, who's struggling. You have maybe an elderly neighbor who's, you know, has, has trouble doing the, the shopping or whatever it might be, and you think, oh, God, send someone in their life to help them. They're struggling. I just can't bear to watch. God's like, hello. <laughs> Why don't you do it? How often do we Pray for people when God's like, you're the answer to that prayer. Wake up. But we don't give. We don't do it. We're out of fear, out of worry, out of indifference. Let's not be hypocrites in serving the Lord. Let's be the answer to prayer, whether it's giving generously, whether it's serving, whether it's helping. This is a big part of the work we're called to do as the temple of God. Perhaps God has put someone in your path on purpose so that he can show them love and grace through you. Not just so you can pray for them in the quiet of your house, but that you can actually roll up your sleeves and do some work. There it is again, work. This guy's talking about work way too much. It's all right, we're almost done. Another one is the work of serving in the church. Serving in the church. have got a pretty good team here. I'm really thankful for that. But I really want to encourage you that it's, it's a good thing. Church is a good thing. It's God's idea. It's not my idea. It's God's idea to come together as believers. And something that we believe here in Calvary Chapel, I just want to read, we, we have several core values. One of them is a core value of service. I want to emphasize it's not the first one. Uh, so it's not that it's all we care about. We have other ones too, but let me read our statement about service. It says, We desire to be a church full, full of those who serve joyfully, creating an atmosphere where we are all engaged and encouraged to welcome, to, to welcome and welcomed, sorry, I should, let me read this here, and welcomed to serve God's church with the spiritual gifts, the abilities, the time, and the resources that he has entrusted to us. There's no marker on how big or how little that has to be. But we want to be a place that people serve joyfully. With whatever God has given you. Whatever capacity you have. You don't have to serve every day. You don't have to, to give everything you have all the time. But whatever capacity you do have. We do it faithfully and we do it joyfully. It's important. Because God is building something here in this house. I believe that. Would not be here if I didn't. And I confess that I've been guilty. I've been guilty of falling into discouragement at times when it comes to the ministry that God has called me into. Because there are times that things don't go as I hoped they would, or things don't kind of uh, unfold the way I thought they, they would, or I don't really understand what God is doing in a certain situation. I've been there. I understand it. The longer that I've been a part of this church, the more I see that God is creating us to be a light that shines brightly in this city and beyond. We want to be planting churches. We want to be growing community, growing a community that reaches into the community of Freiburg and shines the light of God's truth in a way that is bright, that draws people in as God works in their heart and convicts people where they need to be convicted, encourages people where they need to be encouraged, strengthening challenging people to find the Lord. We want to be that. We want to be that and I've seen that growing in this church and I'm thankful for that. God is shaking the heavens and he's calling us to give what we have and God turns the little into much. He takes a few fish and a few pieces of bread and feeds the masses. How much more will God use what we give to bring light to bring light into this world bring light into this city and beyond so even if you have a little don't think that it doesn't matter or that it doesn't make a difference i can only i can only do a little bit i can only serve sometimes or i can only have very little in my life i don't have very many gifts i'm not that talented let me encourage you to invest invest in god's in god's church in god's kingdom invest in a church doesn't have to be this church, but be a part of a church. And if this is your home, then I really challenge you to invest in this church. Join the team. Be a part of the community. And don't underestimate or undervalue even the smallest investment, even the smallest investment in what God can do and what God is building. You might be a part of something that God is continuing to fulfill hundred years in the future. That's our hope. That's how we want to see Having that eternal perspective. And lastly, let me encourage you with the continued work on the temple of God. The continued work on the temple of God. What do I mean? Well, we are the temple. We are the temple. And what we do with our body and our time and our talents matters. This is what it means to build up the temple. First Corinthians 6:19 through 20. There's a lot of talk about this in 1 Corinthians, if you haven't noticed. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is important. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You were purchased at a high price with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we need to let let your life, let your decisions, what you do, what you think, how you invest, what you do with your time, your work, let your work reflect this truth. And I want to say that don't let this lead to discouragement. Because we can say amen to that and then immediately fall back into discouragement, thinking of our shortcomings our failures our lack of talents our lack of gifts our lack of resources I've said before I would I'm I'm a musician and I would love I would love to have been a worship leader but God has not gifted me with music uh, when it comes to singing and uh, so for your sake I don't do that but I do give what I have you can give what you have and let God use it let God grow it into something I grew up with a fear of public speaking and God has molded me through the years, sometimes painfully, but as I continue to give, he continues to grow within me because I'm a co-worker with him. So it doesn't matter how little. It doesn't matter what your failings are, what, your, what you lack. Take what you have. Give him those loaves and those fish and see what he does with it. God sees you. God knows you, and he has called you to himself. You are His. And so we want to be building up the temple. Do this through prayer. Do this through studying God's word, knowing him so that you can be known by him better, meditating on his word. And when you are seeking to glorify God in all that you do because you love him, because he first loved you, and you want to respond to that great grace that you've received, and you seek to live a righteous life before him, you are building up the temple. You are preparing yourself more to be used by God to give what you have. So start the work today. Where have you held back? Where have you not given? Where have you been hesitant? Where have you been discouraged? Give it to the Lord. Conduct yourself as a temple of God. What prevents you from giving more? What holds you back? What fears, what discouragements, what comparisons have you made? Maybe complacency, thinking that you won't really make much of a difference anyway. Maybe it's laziness. You'd really like to do more. You'd really like to see those things done by somebody, but not you. You can't really be bothered with that right now. Build up your faith. Build up your hope. And a great way to start is to change your perspective thinking that everything you do is always going to be working out for something greater than yourself. Step outside of yourself. You are not your own. You were bought. You were purchased. Keep that in mind. Step outside of yourself and consider that all that God is doing, all that He is commanding us, all that He is calling us into, all that God does through us is to bring Him eternal glory. There's an eternal perspective in mind. And the reality is that nothing, anything, anyone could ever do is really worthy of God anyway, even the greatest. Remember that it is God in His sovereignty who paid the price for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God knew what He was getting when He bought you. Maybe you didn't know. He knew. He knew what He was getting when He bought you. And it is not out of his need that he asks us to do the work of ministry. It is not out of his, that he really just needs some help. He doesn't need us. It is because of the joy, the peace, the grace that we receive in joining together with God as co-workers with him, living out the truth of our identity as a true temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen.